This episode of IPv6 Buzz is brought to you by IT Pro TV. Start or grow your IT career with online IT training from IT Pro TV. And we have a special offer for IPv6 Buzz listeners. Sign up and save 30% off all plans. ITPro.tv slash buzz and use promo code buzz at checkout and save 30% off all plans. Welcome to the IPv6 Buzz podcast, where we dare to dive into the 128-bit address space wormhole. Quick reminder, there's sponsorship opportunities available for IPv6 Buzz and all the other Packet Pusher podcast shows. So if you're interested, go to packetpushers.net slash sponsorship for details. And if you've got something cool working with v6, hey, we want to hear from you. So reach out. We'd love to be able to, to, to get you on the show. And uh, if you want to sponsor even better, uh, I'm Ed Horley with my co-host Tom Coffey and Scott Hogan. Today, we're going to jump into some, some listener questions that sort of wrapped up from, from 2021. Here we are in the new year of 2022. So thought it'd be fun to sort of answer some questions that were <laughs> left over at the end of the year that we didn't get around to, uh, to sort of uh, get these out of the way. So let's, let's jump into it. Uh, and Happy New Year uh, uh, to both of you. <laughs> Thanks, Ed. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Question one was, uh, that we got in was, was around, and we talked about this a little bit before, but they're, they're asking around SD-WAN and multiple internet connections for a site, uh, without doing BGP, but they're asking specifically around ULA. And, um, uh, for those that might be listening to the podcast for the first time, ULA is unique local addressing and it's, it's, uh, many people trying to make it analogous with sort of like RFC 1918 address space, but it really isn't. It's just sort of a unique space that's that you can utilize uh, within a, a V6 deployment that uh, isn't going to leak out on the public internet. Uh, it's not it's not publicly routable in the same way. And for our regular listeners, yes, we're talking about ULA again. <laughs> no, this is the question that we got, so yeah, I, mean, I think right. it's fair. So yeah. <laughs> don't don't whine too much in there. But in the enterprise world, right, that, that this individual is living in, they've got hey, we've got. This, it's very common to have a branch site with two or more internet connection links, right? And they're often from some sort of commodity provider. And uh, and these folks may be only offering maybe V6 via PD, DHCP V6 PD. And they're like, how do I make this all work together? Like, how do I get this site to actually work with like SD-WAN and like connect correctly and not have like, and probably is asking the part that isn't expressed here, but, it, but isn't ex- isn't spelled out explicitly, but it's like, how do I avoid having like three prefixes, right? Operating in my, in my single site location that I have to deal with all of these because I have three internet connections. Do I give every single host three addresses on every single different prefix? Right. And that's probably not super desirable, but I mean, it's certainly doable, but it's probably not super desirable in terms of the behavior that we necessarily get. And so they're asking, should we use ULA and NAT66? That's the, that's the crux of the question. Um, so yeah, I guess because they want to avoid vendor locking if the provider assigned address space they've given from they're given from their ISPs. And so they want an independent address block, but they might not have gotten their own allocation. So they're thinking to themselves, could I use private address space like this ULA address space seems private in a way. And could I use that and something like NAT or some proxy functionality to allow me to get a third or a fourth ISP and, and change providers without being locked in. Right. Yeah. Or a fifth or a sixth provider. Mm-hmm. <laughs> however many they want to yeah. get. Right. It's um, yeah. I, th- I think that's the sort of the crux of the, of the, of the question. I, I, 
I, I don't know. This is a hard one because it's like, um, you know, the, depending on what size your organization is, it may make sense to use, try and use ULA and use something like a NAT translation to sort of avoid adopting one prefix that you may want to utilize for your particular site. I guess my question is, is why wouldn't you use your own address space at the site and just NAT for that, right? As opposed to using ULA. Maybe if you already have a global unicast address allocation that you're using at your corporate site, there's no reason you wouldn't use that at the remote site if you're already going to go ahead and do NAT. I don't know. That's sort I guess of a gut. The gut NAT feature. presumes that you've got your own global IPv6 address block. Right. You're yeah. willing to take a portion of it and assign it to that branch office, let's say. And then you need to reach out to your service provider. If you didn't want to do NAT, you reach out to the service provider and say, hey, could you create a static address and disaggregate that little portion, let's say you've allocated a slash 48 for that site and you disaggregate, you ask that service provider to route that slash 48 for you from their ASN. Is that what you would ask if you wanted to avoid doing that? You wanted to use your global address space at that site. Then you're asking the service provider to originate from there. ASN, your disaggregated slash 48. Yeah, I mean, it's possible to do that as a request. I also think it's possible just to also still use NAP, but just don't use ULA. Use mm -hmm. a portion of your address space, right? Like a 48 that you assign out to the site, but then translate it to each one of the service providers, you know, yeah, I like PD they give it to. So Yeah, if you had to do NAT 66, I guess I, I prefer that over using ULA. <laughs> exactly. Because yeah, your host behavior is going to be consistent mm -hmm. yeah and it's and it fits within the it's it becomes a very it becomes at least in my mind's eye i don't know but for sd-wan writing the access rules becomes much easier then right mm -hmm. because it's your address space talking to your address space right and then you're only doing you know some sort of nat translation to get to some sort of global unicast address that's out there on the public internet uh, you might want to consider using that way but that's right yeah. Obviously, you're you're you are disaggregating your address range to a degree, I guess, but it's mm -hmm. but it's not like your service provider is actually advertising it for you. You're still going to do some sort of NAT. It's just a matter of uh, when you tunnel to get back to your corporate site, it still just looks like your address space. So if you ever do build a backup connection or anything else, it doesn't behave any differently than if it was just your site. Yeah, definitely, because you might have maybe a cluster of sites in a metropolitan area using you know, some Metro Ethernet services on the back end, and they could still use that global IPv6 address space to communicate with them just natively using a right. dynamic route, an IGP <laughs> or yeah. something. Yeah. And but if then, you decide, if you yeah. decide you don't want to give them local internet hop off, you just get rid of the NAT and just force the tunnel all the way back to yourself. And then they're going through your firewall with the same rules, with the same address range. Like, I, I just see it being more consistent, mm -hmm. but th this yeah. could just be me and my, my ignorance around. And, around. I think that's right. I, I think probably it might be confusing for some folks who are, you know, maybe if if you're not at the at the enterprise level where you ha actually have a large network and you're using SD WAN to to deliver services over that large network and you have an IPv6 allocation that you can peel off global unicast 48 and and do exactly what you're saying. I, I think it <clears throat> it becomes challenging and problematic when you start talking about smaller businesses and what they're supposed to do in a scenario where, you know, they have, you know, essentially their organization is one or two branch, what would be the equivalent of one or two branch offices for a large enterprise. And, 
you know, the idea of like, say, routing a 48 through whoever they're getting their business service, business class connectivity through, you know, they're not large enough to really use SD-WAN. Um, the, it, then the, the question then becomes, is it a scenario where, you know, maybe renumbering isn't that big of a deal because the organization is much smaller, um, but that the, the, it's very complicated. Like there's this sort of sour spot, you know, that you sit in where you, you know, you can't really get more than a 48 worth of address space if you've only got the one connection. So, you, you know, you don't, you don't have a lot of addresses to play with in the first place. I mean, relatively speaking, obviously it's a 48 prefix is a huge amount of addresses, but just in terms of actual routable space. So I think for enterprises, it just ends up, you know, there's a, there's a lot of different options you can go with. And I think we're sort of settling on, you know, NAT's fine if you if you need to use it. Uh, you're probably better off using NAT with GUA and, and avoiding ULA altogether because of the the host priority problem that ULA introduces. Um, but you know, I definitely I'm just trying to think of those listeners out there that are, you know have their smaller enterprises and and th maybe they're trying to listen between the lines to what we're saying and like, well, how do how do I configure you know our particular network with the same set of technologies? Yeah, the other problem with ULA is the U part of that, the unique portion. If you're going to follow the RFC, you have to create that 40-bit random number and stick that after the FD to make it unique. And if you've ever seen a hex number, a random number written as 40-bit written as hex digits, it's it's crazy. It's not easy to remember. It's not easy to type. And then each site, each of these branch offices, you would need to generate another slash 48. So you don't have enough address space. You'll you'll generate a different ULA random number uh, for each prefix, each slash forty eight for each site, and that's just got to be hard to maintain if you're doing it, you know, per the RFC, you know, officially yeah, by the book standards. <laughs> that would be no, a nightmare. No one does. No one does that. I mean, it's. I know. I, th I, I think on the ULA side, here my my practical take is: if you're starting with a single service provider, just number from their space because. The reality is you'll only have to nap once for whoever mm -hmm. the second service provider is that you get. And if you have to renumber later down the road, it's probably a small enough site that just advertising mm -hmm. a new prefix, giving them on that new address space and then getting rid of the old prefix and then turning up the third one that you get is probably fine. And then setting up nap for the third one. Yeah. Right. Is, is my yeah. guess for that smaller use case scenario that Tom was talking about, which is like, I don't know where we fit. Right. And we're sort of small and in that mid space. That's how I would tackle it. Mm -hmm. Tackle yeah. the problems that are mm -hmm. in front of you that you can deal with and address quickly. And that's that's at least what goes through my head. And then if you have the bigger enterprises that we talked about and you got the address space, then nap from your address space, like nap from that to whatever you need to mm -hmm. go to. And uh, and then you don't have to do any nap at all if you're going from SD-WAN site to SD-WAN site, because then it's just routing. Yeah, uh, it looks cool. And, and now to totally confuse our listeners, are we talking about NAT 6.6 or are we talking about NPTV 6? <laughs> um, so my, my default is always to talk about uh, NPTV 6, but I know the reality is, is that NAT 6.6 is, is, is out there and pretty ubiquitous in terms of certain mm -hmm. platforms. So you're going to see people that don't necessarily understand the difference between the two. Mm -hmm. So that's why I think Scott and I were just saying that. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just the easiest to turn yeah. on based on what you're used mm -hmm. to and the equipment that you have that supports it. And exactly, yeah. exactly. Because your vendor may only support one or the other, but not both. Mm. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. um, another thing is you could use the service providers IPv6 address space for like your quote front side VRF. Mm -hmm. You know, use their V6 address space. And if your service provider charges you extra for a static, non-changing IPv4 address, then you could use the 
service providers, PA IPv6 address space for the IPsec tunnel or a tunnel to a cloud and then use the global prefix that you're using inside of that branch for inside the tunnel. Right. But use the provider address space for the outside of the tunnel. If that right. makes sense. The extra, yeah. The, yeah, mm-hmm. It 100% makes sense. Yeah. That's exactly Scott's basically offering if you you can build a VPN to his home and he'll route your IPv6 <laughs> <I'll terminate laughs> pre- yeah. pre- <laughs> he'll, he'll prefixes for you for a small nominal fee. Yeah. <laughs> if, as long as you accept my SSL certificate, yeah, no, no questions asked. <laughs> uh, well, let's. I think. I think we. I think we address most of the scenario use cases, and there might be one or two small nitpicky ones that 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 fall through the cracks. And the listeners can hit us up if they have something specific around what they think is is different than what we just described there. But I think we sort of address the the obvious ones that uh, uh, would make sense, at least from a design and deployment standpoint, about what we would sort of tackle. I interrupt the podcast today for a quick word from our sponsor, IT Pro TV. Do you remember the ransomware attack on the gas pipeline from last year? That is an example of how cybersecurity professionals are in demand. There are more than 500,000 open cybersecurity roles, and you can become a cybersecurity professional with some online training. It's never too late to start a new career in IT or move up the ladder, and IT Pro TV, today's sponsor, has you covered. From CompTIA and Cisco to EC Council and Microsoft. IT Pro TV is offering more than 5,800 hours of on-demand training, and they, they teach it with engaging hosts. They present information in a talk show format, so it's not boring. They're live every day if you like live content, and the shows that they record each day, those go studio to web in 24 hours. The courses are conveniently listed by category, certification, and job role. And you can stream IT Pro TV's courses live or on demand worldwide via really any platform you want Roku, Apple TV, PC, or their iOS or Android apps. Learn IT, pass your certs, and get a great job with IT Pro TV. Visit itpro.tv slash buzz for 30% off all plans and use promo code buzz at checkout. That's itpro.tv slash buzz and use promo code buzz at checkout. One more time, itpro.tv slash buzz and use promo code buzz at checkout to save 30% off all plans. And now back to the podcast. The second one was talking about... um stable prefix allocations post a reboot of your router. So this is probably for folks that have like, um, are there are service providers using DHPv6 PD, which is prefix delegation. And if you reboot your router, the router is probably going out and sending out a like, hey, I don't need this prefix anymore, or I reboot and I want a net new prefix. And then you're getting a totally different prefix than the one that you just had moments before uh, when your router was, was up and running before it rebooted. And you're like, hey, what the heck is going on? I've got this new prefix and I wrote all these fancy rules for my firewall rules and I have these things published in DNS and suddenly like all this stuff just went away. <laughs> yeah, right? I'm using dynamic DNS and now that changed. Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. So like they're they're basically asking like, how, how can we set up static inbound IPv6 for my servers when the prefixes are changing around? Which is a totally legitimate question uh, to ask. And this has been an ongoing problem for a while with, I, I would, I can, I think we can say that pretty pretty confidently that this has been an mm-hmm. ongoing thing for a while for service providers. And this is actually being addressed. There was a presentation by Fernando Grant 
uh, at the UK IPv6 Council uh, meeting this just this last December, the December of uh, 2021. And you can look up the UK IPv6 Council presentation, look up Fernando's uh, uh, talk, and he addresses basically the IETF is, is in the process of addressing this to basically allow the method for the router to basically, when it comes back up, not to necessarily ask for a brand new prefix, but to say like, hey, please return me the prefix that I just used. or just Yeah, had. just renew. Yeah, and renew okay. me, don't- Renew don't, out of cash. Yep. No. Yep. Exactly. Yeah. Do a whole nother, you know, solicit, advertise, request, reply. You know. Right. Uh, yeah. And I, and I, I so, so here's the challenge. You're not going to avoid this in the near term until <laughs> that that stuff makes it through standards and makes it into the CPE devices and becomes more ubiquitous. So I I, I imagine a couple. Of, it's going to take a couple of years for that to sort of happen. I mean, obviously, the service providers can push it out as fast as they want. Um, I think this is good for the industry. I, I, I would much prefer to have a stable prefix myself, even uh, even though I don't map services. It's just sort of nice to know what your prefix is, and it says and it stays, you know, relatively consistent over time. Um, unless you actually want a new one, in which case you could send the right messages from the router and say like, "Hey, please just give me a fresh new one," because whatever I'm I'm being DDoSed or I'm, you know whatever whatever is going on with you right yeah I don't know about you Ed I'd like a different prefix every 10 minutes <laughs> <laughs> I'd like to fast flux yeah that's what I'm gonna say fast flux hogue is what they call him you can't find me you can't find me <laughs> Well, I mean, I, I suppose that's possible to do. Um, <laughs> Your service provider will be happy to charge you for that. Yes. <laughs> I've noticed my Cox connection here at home. It, it, it's relatively stable. I, I provide a prefix hint of a slash 56 and that's what it coughs up. So it's delegating a prefix right. and, mm -hmm. uh, and it stays, uh, you know, it, it sticks around for weeks on end. So I, I haven't gotten yeah. to the point where I have enough data points to figure out when it goes away, when it changes, but it's, it's pretty stable. Yeah, I've seen this improving over the last decade. You know, a decade ago, it was pretty rough. <laughs> uh, depending on your CPE, depending on your service provider and how they configured their, you know, PD scopes or what have you, um, their pools uh, and how frequently, you know, those would change. I'm seeing them be more stable these days, even without this new RFC. Right. Yeah, and I, I think it makes sense for the service providers too. It's just less mm -hmm. churn in terms mm -hmm. of how many prefixes you're handing out and where they go. So it probably keeps our route tables a little bit more steady on at least within the within that small site geography, right? Of not having as much uh, introduced there, much as much churn uh, going mm -hmm. on for the prefixes that are actually happening. So from a controller basis, it's probably a little cleaner just to hand back the stuff that you just were operating with uh, that individual, um, you know, originally. But yeah, I, I think you'll see improvement for this over time. So I, I, I guess my recommendation to the listener is uh, sit tight. <laughs> Things should get better. But uh, but if you're if you're curious about that one, I really do recommend you check out the presentation Fernando got. It's he 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 sort of covered it in, in pretty good depth. So I, I would I would steer you there. I don't know if we have any better answers. Um, yeah, maybe we, maybe we can try and get a service provider or two on to talk about what they're doing and why they want to do what they want to do. Yeah. In the meantime, get a uninterruptible power supply for your router. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, that's it. That's true. As long as your router doesn't go down or doesn't reboot for other reasons, then uh, you should be good to go. Um, cool. Uh, let's, let's hit question three, um, uh, which was, uh, th this is from an individual who actually teaches, um, uh, teaches at, at a, I guess, a 
vocational college or maybe a JC or something like that. And, and they're running into some challenges about some of their colleagues who are teaching other teaching students that are coming in, but they're slicing up V6 in the same way they're slicing up V4, which means that they're actually teaching their students how to like subnet down to like slash 120s and acting like you should be handing those out like slash 24s in IPv4 land. And, uh, and sort of, you know, it's sort of contrary to what we sort of, at least I think for us, consider industry standard in terms of how you should be doing, uh, should be doing, you know, subnetting or addressing or prefix delegation or, you know, any sort of design work. So uh, I guess I throw it to Tom, any thoughts? Around, <laughs> you know, I, my, my heart goes out to those, those folks that are just learning the IP addressing and, and subnet masking and subnets and VLSM, you know, for the first time. Cause I, I remember when I got started, you know, way back in 1835 or whenever that was, how the, it, you know, it was like, that was a, a hard thing to sort of get your mind around initially, like just dealing with binary and moving from bi binary to decimal and how masks work. And then when you finally got a handle on it, you know, then it was like subnet all the things, you know? And so maybe, mm -hmm. maybe there's a little bit of that going on where it's like, sure. you know, you teach it in V4 and then you, you get it to V6 and you're like, I have 120 bits to play with. And, you know, oops, hey, by the way, buddy, 164 of those bits are off limits. You know, you, you don't get that message like necessarily right away. So it, yeah, they should be, they should be talking about the, the standard of a 64 bit interface identifier and that that's, you know, it's, it's supposed to be inviolable we see subnets for very specific, to solve very specific te technical problems. We see that subnetting beyond that slash 64, but, but yeah, you're, you're breaking the rules. So I, you know, <laughs> stop doing that. <laughs> it's a, that's the, uh, that's the ruler on the knuckles right there for the, uh, for the, for, for, but for the teachers, not for the students. Yeah, I that's think, right. Yeah. I think it's pretty brave to teach a subject that you don't know. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> wow. I don't, yeah, yeah. I guess, I guess, I guess that's a fair point. I mean, I, it, it is a standard. I mean, this isn't something that we're making up you guys uh, for, for the listeners. I mean, a 64 is a, it, you have a bunch of operational things that will not work if you do not do a 64 by default. Uh, and some of them is like Slack. Slack will not work yeah. without a default 64. And there's a whole other suite of things that fall into the assumption, but I don't know if it's the assumption bucket, but the, the assumption that 64 is the default and therefore these things can operate appropriately because of the fact that the 64 is there. So the moment you break that stuff, you, number one, all the host operating systems you're dealing with are all going to freak out. Like they're not going to know how to do things the way that you would expect them to do. And you're going to do a tremendous amount of manual labor and extra work in, our, in order to get them to actually function correctly. Well, it, it's even worse than important. that though, right? Because, because they may work. They may, th this is the problem. You don't, you don't necessarily know whether it's going to work or not. And the problem yeah, might be yeah. the, 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 the issue that you run into might be completely occult where <laughs> it's, it's completely hidden to you until like the worst possible combination of, of elements comes together and creates like a troubleshooting problem that is just an absolute nightmare. Right. Um, so yeah, you, you really want to avoid putting yourself in that situation by violating the standard. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's really uh, sage advice in terms of saying like, Hey, that's, you, you may actually end up in a more difficult situation because initially it does look like it's working mm -hmm. uh, and functioning the way that you anticipate, but you, 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 because you deviated out of the norms around that stuff, you're going to run into some, some severe challenges later. That's right. And the footnote of that is that you can, if you choose to violate the standard, you, you know, do that knowingly to solve a particular technical problem that you're running into. But you, but you have to know that you're, you know, like that's what we did with the 127s or the 126s for point-to-point -point links. 
Mm -hmm. we, we knew we were violating the standard, but but that was something that, you know, we sort of agreed to do across the industry to solve a, a, a problem that was manifesting at the time. Right. It was a technical trade off. As we yeah, exactly. Saying. And if you're as long as you're aware that 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 what the stakes are for attempting that, then, you know, you, you can proceed with caution. But but just to do it because you're like, oh, I did it in V4 and I'm going to do the same thing in V6. And especially I'll just, you know, beat this particular uh, dead equestrian, but especially because, you know, you're just used to doing it with V4. You're worried about over consuming, quote unquote, over-consuming IPv6 address space. So I got to subnet it, you know, just so I don't overuse it. Nope. Sorry. You, you know, don't, don't yeah, worry about that. 64 bits for the interface identifier, 64 bits for the prefixes, you know, go to town, but, but no, no subnetting to the right of that 64. Yeah. I'd say if, if you know you're going to be teaching an IPv6 class, then maybe just simply refer to the Cisco Press IPv6 Fundamentals book by Rick mm -hmm. Graziani. Mm -hmm. We had him on on IPv6 Buzz uh, number 25. Uh, and that's a great book to start with that would start you off using, you know, understanding why a slash 64 is a common convention and recommended convention. And, you know, if you're teaching one of those types of classes, his book would be a great resource for your students. Yeah, yeah, I, it's yeah, a great it I, it's a great resource for me. I refer to mm -hmm. it pretty frequently. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, especially when I'm rusty on certain things, or I'm like, I don't remember what we did there for that. It's it's a great way to sort of dig through and pull that stuff back up and be like, oh yeah, that's 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 a good explanation of what's going on. We'll we'll list uh, Rick's Rick's book and and a couple of the references that I think are are relevant. Um, uh, just off the just sort of off our list was RFC sixty one seventy seven. Uh, there's ripe has a, a you know sort of a best practice as a b cop that you can use <laughs> that you can use um that uh, a lot of folks reference uh, ripe uh, 690 uh ap nick has some older stuff that's available for you know best practices um you know aaron's got some old stuff might still be useful the, the old uh get ipv6 info <laughs> they 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 decided to to retire the retire that site, but they did turn it all into a giant PDF. <laughs> so, so it's still available out there. So we'll throw all those links in the, in the show notes. And if that's something that you think might be useful uh, for either the class or even for yourself in terms of uh, referencing for knowing that, that would be, that'd be good. Make sure you pick up the second edition of, of Rick's book. Uh, it did come out with an update. And what was that two years ago? I think you got the second edition, second edition out. Yeah. Right around there. Yeah. So I would definitely, it's, but I highly recommend his book. It's a, it's a, it's a great book and, and reference material to, to utilize for the, uh, for sort of understanding why, why the slash 64 really is the way to go and that you're not going to be doing anything a, a lot longer than that, uh, with the exceptions of, of a few things that are happening within the protocol itself. So I think, uh, what compatibility addresses are slash 96, right? Cause we fit the 32 of all of IPv4 in that. Mm -hmm. The well-known prefix for DNS 64. Right. Uh, what else fits in? Uh, oh, uh, yeah, I guess, uh, I guess some of the, I'm trying to think if there's anything else that's really, oh, solicited no multicast addresses. <laughs> that's like what a slash 104 or something like that. I think, I think that's, it's like a, it only uses a lower 24 or something of the, of the uh, actual address for right. matching right. up for that. That's multicast I'm, I'm, address I'm though. The, so. Yeah. Yeah. I'm doing this off the top of my head. <laughs> so, yeah. But it's, I think, I think, you know, sticking with the 64 is really the way to go. So there you go. Now I'm sticking to it. <laughs> right on. Yeah. Well, cool. I mean, that 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 covers the uh, the the quick questions. I don't know if you guys had anything else we wanted to 
to cover quickly before jumping off. Uh, oh, these are these are excellent questions. So thank you so much, and we look forward to doing more of these uh, this year. So keep keep the questions coming. These are particularly good. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, we we love all the nerdy technical detail ones. So if we it makes us go up and and look stuff up. So <laughs> keep us current. <laughs> well, that's a good thing. All right. Well, unlike V6, we run out of space for this podcast. You can reach the IPv6 Buzz podcast on Twitter. We're at IPv6 Buzz. You can also hit up each one of us on Twitter too. Uh, Tom is at IPv6 Tom. Uh, Scott is at Scott Hogue, and I'm at E Horley. Thanks for listening to the IPv6 Buzz. You can find us on the Packet Pushers or any of your favorite podcast apps. Just search for IPv6 Buzz. Uh, if you like the show, please give us a rating on iTunes. And uh, if you like the podcast, we recommend you check out Heavy Networking, Day2 Cloud, Network Break, and all the other great technical content over at PacketPushers.net. So long and until next time, we'll see you on the internet. The IPv6 internet, that is. Thanks for listening to IPv6 Buzz, a podcast devoted to truth, justice, and 128 bits of address space. IPv6.